in my view, if you really want to unlock the value which can exist between brand and community, a licensee isn't the way to do that. There has to be something direct. There has to be something meaningful. Hello and welcome to the Sporting Crypto podcast, where we talk to leaders in Web3 and sports about their journeys in this wild world. This is episode five, and I'm really happy to be joined by Tarek Nazlawi, who is the president of Science Magic Studios. Tarek, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Pet. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. So as always with guests, we ask them what they're currently spending most of their energy on. What's that for you? Yeah, well, I'm spending quite a lot of it at the moment. I am building a company called Science Magic Studios. I was hired about one year ago um, out of Adidas to to lead this new company. Um, this is a company which helps brands connect with people using emerging technology like blockchain and Web3. And that was a challenge I was very ready to uh, to embark on after doing a bunch of stuff in digital innovation, including Web3 um, at Adidas. And I think while like many of us are in the space right now, we're really working on cracking the nut of market fit in consumer and fan use cases. So fascinating challenge and a huge opportunity. And I think it's going to keep us busy for a little while. If we talk about Web3 and crypto, for you personally, where did that interest start and stem from? Okay. I'm a 2020 vintage, right? And this was kind of a, I don't know, there's not really anybody's conventional red pill story, right? Mm. Everybody has a slightly different story. For me, it was, well, I'm a parent. And, uh, you know, when you're in your sort of late 30s, mid to late 30s, you start thinking, I should probably be like doing something to look after my family's future. And so I'm probably going to like, you know, start investing, doing a bit of trading or something. I should probably have like a brokerage account because, you know, you kind of need to, to look out for the future. And um, I got into a competition with my dad and my brother, actually, around, you know, like, let's let's all sort of take the same amount of stake and see what we can do. And uh, this was now, what, middle of 2020, so just after the big pandemic crash of of Q2. And the platform I was trading on allowed you to buy crypto. So I bought a bit of Bitcoin and Ethereum, which made for a very fascinating competition in the second half of 2020. And once you've got a bit of skin in the game, that's when you start learning what it is that you have. And I started learning about Bitcoin. I started learning about blockchain. And I even started learning about money, you know, like what it actually is and just how crazy the social construct of money actually is. And that for me was it. I came at it, um, I guess, a little bit from that financial context that blockchain was originally uh, conceived for. But it didn't take very long um, to start understanding the much wider use cases of blockchain, especially when you start to understand the Ethereum ecosystem, the programmability, uh, nature of um, of smart contracts. And then Q1 2021 came around and, you know, NFTs were having its kind of second tissue paper fire, if you like. Uh, and that's when things started to really converge with my, you know, my personal journey and my professional journey, actually. It's really interesting. Everyone I've spoken to who has a history in consumer facing roles, who then learns about blockchain tech afterwards, almost all of them tell me they have that kind of light bulb moment where they're joining two dots that are so far away, but in their brain, they're not far away, mm. which is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, I think the two things were very separate to me. I guess that convergence moment for me was in Q1 2021, when 
you know, I started, maybe it was actually around Christmas 2020 when I was, you know, basically not watching Netflix, only watching YouTubes and starting to understand um, what an NFT was. The idea that this is now almost like digital matter that creates the opportunity for, to have things in the digital world, which you can transfer. You know, the Beepal thing happened in Q1. Elon Musk tweeted that Tesla was accepting Bitcoin. And uh, all of a sudden, we had this whole influx at Adidas of, you know, people asking, well, you know, what's what's Adidas doing? What does what's, this mean for us? What does this mean? Well, you know, we're partners with Adidas. Like, what what can these NFT things do? And of course, like, you know, my inbox started filling up because I was working in, you know, digital innovation of fashion e-commerce running the Adidas Confirmed app. And um, of course, there was no like head of Web3 wasn't even the word that people were really sort of using at that time. But that's when we started to take a, start taking a proper look at it. And you started to understand that there are use cases now that might connect culture and commerce as well as just kind of financial use cases of, uh, of blockchain. Uh, and that was kind of the beginning of a journey. Like there was... There's basically a, a bunch of people who thought like, there's definitely something here, but we don't have a plan for it. Why don't we start figuring out what that should be and assemble the team who's going to work it out? We're going to get to that in a moment because I think that journey must be fascinating and I want to dig into it a lot. But your background was actually in manufacturing engineering and you then turned to become a consultant, which is actually, we've had a pretty similar journey. What sparked the change of direction from something quite STEMI into something a little bit more, let's call it abstract. Well, yeah, I'm, I kind of do feel like I'm a long way from home. Let's put it like that. I think if you want to sort of try and find the red thread in that story, for me, it's really always about the unlock of potential value and the reduction of waste, if you like. And so I originally came at that from a very technical engineering standpoint I grew up around manufacturing and supply chain. My, my dad actually runs an apparel factory in Cairo. I always had this idea that with the right problem-solving skill set, there isn't a challenge too big, right? You know, give me a lever long enough kind of attitude. So strategy consulting was a great schooling for that. I loved that. I started to learn that I really also loved like really collaborating deeply with people to solve problems. The move into Adidas was the move to try and start applying that in an industry which I actually had like an emotional connection with, right? Sporting mm. goods and fashion. And it was all about compressing the value chain. Like how do we sort of, why does it take 12 months to make a t-shirt from idea to shelf? And how do we make more of what people want and less of what people don't want? I kind of banged my head against that wall in, in a large company for a long time before I realized that unless you look at how product is created, it's very difficult to influence anything downstream about how it's made, how it's distributed. So that's when I made the shift into digital. I took over the customization business at Adidas, which was the only point in the company that any consumer was telling us what they actually wanted. And that was a fascinating left turn. I actually closed that business in the end, sadly, because there was a, the realization that maybe people don't necessarily want to design their own thing, right? They, they do want to, uh, to have something that has cultural relevance, that feels more emotionally connected to them, but to create a burden of design, have a higher price point and wait longer when there's plenty of good alternatives on the shelf, wasn't the model. But the idea of a brand having an infrastructure which can be put in service of outside creators absolutely was interesting. So we started looking at open source creation. How do you have outside creators reach their communities and audience using brands infrastructure, right? How does a brand become a platform? Now you start to see the red threads 
about how this kind of leads to the Web3 side of mm-hmm. things. So that digital innovation journey, you start to think about a little bit more of a decentralized approach to how infrastructure can be used. COVID hit, I was then asked to lead the fashion e-commerce business and build out Adidas Confirmed, which is the streetwear app, uh, which was a fascinating challenge. First time I'd really launched a proper consumer-facing product at scale, half a billion euros of business, I think, more even by the until until Kanye West, uh, the Kanye West episode. And the Web3 thing appeared on the side. And, and, and that was when, you know, back to the personal journey, meeting the professional journey, I was thinking, well, here we have an, an entire fashion business where kind of collector culture lives. Sneakers is a big, a big game, ultimately. We have this whole DNA of open source creation, which has been with the brand for a long time. And we have this technology, which might actually help to create the connective tissue between the brand, its consumers and creators. Wow. All of these tributaries have all of a sudden been like leading to this moment. And it felt like Web3 and NFTs were like the missing ingredient that would all of a sudden enable a brand to potentially orchestrate a network. And that was when I was just like, I'm all in, all in. Well, that's great. Cause I was actually going to ask you like joining Adidas, starting out in strategy and supply, moving into customization. But as you said, as your professional job was to compress those supply chain cycles, you've compressed my show notes in like five wow. minutes, which is brilliant by the way. And <laughs> you've, you've led really well into, well, you're thinking about this kind of open source creator influence into products and also user influence, right? Like UGC has become a massive thing in gaming, but I think that's going to become a, a big proponent in art, fashion, digital media, et cetera, et cetera. Leading Adidas into Web3, which you alongside a couple of others did internally, can you recall the first time it was discussed at Adidas and what that was like? First time Web3 was discussed at Adidas. Yeah, I do remember it. Actually, it was a pretty clear moment in time. To be clear, it wasn't discussed as Web3, though. It was blockchain and NFTs. The the umbrella terminology was still kind of emerging. And it was an email flurry that was triggered by a few things happening in quick succession. Elon Musk's tweet about Tesla accepting Bitcoin, the sale of the Beeple piece of work, a lot of momentum behind the crypto market at the time, which in the prior 12 months had like, the, I don't know what it was, 3x or 5x or something like that. And um, there was nobody in charge of it. So our chief digital officer, who I'd built a really good relationship with over the, over the prior years, was looking for a way to start to channel this energy. And, um, you know, being in a position of leading digital innovation and fashion e-commerce and partnering with our lifestyle brands very closely on that, and having this personal interest that I'd built up, I just, you know, put my hand up and it became a very natural thing to be one of the people to channel that alongside an amazing woman called Erica Wicksneed, who at the time was leading the marketing of our lifestyle business, massive business. Um, and she comes from a technology background as well, technology marketing and growth. So together we basically channeled all these emails of like all, all people around the company were all of a sudden like finding themselves in this train of, of emails like, oh, I should loop in this person because they know something about this. And it was like a bit of a mess. So it needed to be channeled. And off the back of that, you set up a, you know, a workspace and figure out who's who. It's a big company. And we really kind of unearth people from all different functions in the company. You suddenly have the random product guy who's deep into this stuff personally. And he's like, let's go. 
Yeah, but I mean, product would be where you might assume you'd find, right? Everywhere. Content planning, tax, just marketing. There were global people, people more in regions in, in our sort of, you know, it's, it's a company organized by markets. And that was a very unconventional experience, right? Because you, you can't, as you can imagine, in a, in a big company, it, things usually have some kind of organization around them. This was a very organic way to assemble a task force. Very startup-y? Yeah, a lot less hierarchical, um, that's for sure. I think this is where you start to realize that everybody needs to be that extra little bit more curious. Nobody has a lot of answers. So there was a lot more listening to each other. A lot more, I think, respect for the unique superpowers that someone can bring outside their roles. So it was a very interesting fusion. And a this is where kind of culture beats structure, you know. And I think that's one of the things that Adidas, I think, has always been very good at is creating an environment where collaboration and innovation can happen inside the structure and also around the structure, which makes for something of a slightly more ambiguous journey sometimes. But that's exactly what was needed for this. And that team basically put together with a small agency called Rumford's Great Guys, basically a strategy, right? Like the, the job was, you know, hold on, do we just jump in and start dishing out sneaker NFTs? Or do we sort of maybe take our time and think about how do we think this amplifies the attitude of the brand, right? Through sport, we have the power to change lives, right? That's, that's the brand attitude or core belief. And it felt transformative. So we took a beat to try and figure out how does this do this? That's what that moment, we spent, you know, April, May, June of that year figuring it out. And uh, then things started really starting to take shape. And speaking of that led you to, I think probably one of the biggest brand activations that we'd seen up until that point, right? I mean, forgetting NBA Top Shot. If we talk like consumer facing brands where people buy products rather than are entertained by content or in this, in that case, a sport, Sportswear giant collaborates with some of the biggest NFT creators in the world with Into the Metaverse. How did that come about? Well, so we got this scrappy task force and we had an emerging strategy about how we thought this could be used. And in the strategy work, I think we started to realize that the properties of NFTs and currencies can potentially have multiple roles, right? And we're like, wow, they're like, this could be big. I think in July, we realized this probably is going to end up being a lot around how any kind of membership and loyalty thing is going to happen, but we couldn't. It was early. So we were like, okay, we just need to start. This is a corporate innovation task, right? And as I mentioned, I'd been doing that for a little while by then. So Wisdom was, was saying, buy off something which is authentically us. Do it in a way which is true to the brand's heritage, you know, I mean, Adidas has been collaborating with people since forever, right? Since athletes, athletes for the Olympics to run DMC to Beyonce or whatever, like it's been a collaborator brand the whole time. One of the guys in the team, his name's Ben Mayer-White, um, who had really only been in NFTs for a short time by then, but was really deep into it, just DM'd people on Twitter. And, you know, at this time, it was like around the time that, you know, Bored Apes had barely minted. So what we think of as the Yuga Labs empire now then was something that you really had to be paying attention to. So through Twitter, we got connected with uh, G Money, G Funk from Pixel Vault, and um, the Bored Apes gang, and kind of assembled this consortium of people. We were like, you know, G Money is an educator, Pixel Vault starting to think about um, how the medium of entertainment comics at the time 
could be used as a way to, you know, onboard people, like doing something familiar, like collectibles. And we were fascinated by the Bored Apes model of kind of decentralizing the intellectual property side of it. And we're like, well, this is very interesting. We make dope clothes. That's what people know Adidas for. So why don't we try and find a way to symbolize that? We also see these crossovers between um, streetwear, you know, the collectability of streetwear, the storytelling around the product as well being important. Why don't we do basically an NFT redeemable, right? Buy the NFT, get the collection, and it's uniquely available only to those holders. And effectively, it'll be like a culture collaboration. And that's how we could learn from this crew that, that we'd assembled. And alongside that came the Coinbase partnership as well, the announcement of the Sandbox partnership. And we're like, we're stepping in. We don't have all the answers, but we think we've got something to offer. And um, yeah, that's how it kind of started. But we soon realized it was going to be a lot more than just a redeemables collection, a redeemable for uh, an apparel collection. And what was your role specifically there? So Erica and I were kind of the leads on this, Erica on the brand side and, and myself on the digital side, uh, which really meant thinking strategically, but in a, in a much more innovation-oriented cadence, which means very iteratively, and thinking about how to navigate uh, what the actual concept would be that would reach some kind of proof point for us that would potentially lead to something more, right? And of course, that means really being a leader in the team, right? Like trying to set a cadence how this team can become like from a motley crew into a sort of high-performing team with a good idea of what it is we're trying to achieve and what we want to bite off and actually what we might not want to bite off, which I'd learned a lot about in the, in the prior years, and to try and create the space for that innovation to, to happen. Do you want to give us a, an idea of, you know, you might not go in specific numbers, but roughly just how well this did when you guys got it out there from a impressions perspective, from a earned media perspective, from a PR perspective, from a revenue perspective? Yeah. Well, I mean, the revenue stuff is well, is well known, you know, I mean, in fact, it was almost kind of disappointing how it's covered, you know, not because it was a very successful drop, right? Like, even though there were a couple of hiccups in the actual drop itself, it was the biggest, right? 30,000 NFTs, so 1155s, or also known as sort of semi-fungible ones, so everybody gets the same one. Um, so the largest and most widely distributed drop by any brand at that time. From that standpoint, we were like, okay, like this was definitely the biggest plague that it's has been planted. It's a big swing, right? It is a big swing. And, you know, it was priced at, I think, 0.2 ETH, which is around something like 700, 800 euros at the time. So from a revenue perspective, and this is what the media picked up, Adidas makes $20 million or whatever on an NFT drop. And we're like, well, I mean, like that's technically true. But like for a start, it was a four-way split. You know, like when you come in humbly to the space, actually, we were like, look, you guys are actually the ones who are the leaders. We're the ones who are you know, just stepping in. So this is going to be a four-way split between all the partners, which you can actually see on chain, by the way. So like, that's also, you know, no journalist would bother to do that. So from that standpoint, it was quite successful. And of course, it grabs the attention internally, right? When, when people start to say like, oh, we didn't even have to make a shoe yet to create this kind of revenue. Can we take a closer look at that, please? So from that standpoint, it was great. But I think from another standpoint, it was also one of the coolest and most unexpected things the brand had done that year right? And it's quite easy to compare, you know, Yeezy drops and Beyonce drops and things like that with in terms of like the number of impressions, the earned media that you get. And one thing that really surprised us was 
maybe because our timing was serendipitously perfect in Q4 2021, it basically created actually quite a lot of hype around the brand, more than some of the things that we were doing as part of our core business. So it was cool. It was new. It was unexpected. It did make some money. And that's a very good place to be when you're trying to bring a large organization with you into a new space. And obviously, you know, you mentioned the four-way split. There's also resources and investment that's required. You know, it's not like five mils come into the bank for Adidas and it's just sitting there and it's not against any other costs or anything like that. Um, so that the reporting was funny. I do remember looking at that being like, hmm, people actually know what it takes to get, get something like that out the door and collaborate with all those projects. It was really interesting. Kudos to you and the team for doing such great work on that. One of the questions I've got is, you mentioned that internal excitement. You were senior at Adidas, but there's obviously people that are more senior than you that call the shots. Yes. Yes, there are. What were the conversations like pre and post into the metaverse with those stakeholders? Very interesting um, and quite a ride. I think, so I just go back to something I said earlier, when the culture of a company really in its DNA wants to see innovation happen, you generally do get air cover for these things, right? So our chief digital officer and the, the head of our lifestyle brand, two of them like work very closely together, great, great relationship, sponsored it. So this is now, you know, we're in the second half of 2022 and we're like, we think there's something really here. All those emails that we were trying to channel, we think there's something really here. We've got an idea of how we want to go after it. Are you in? And the answer was yes. Like, let's go see. I mean, it was a longer conversation than that, but the answer was, yeah, let's, let's go do this. Like, it feels like we're going to do something which is quite authentic and thoughtful. And this is a real chance for us to, to be first, you know, and like in the streetwear world, you know, I don't know if you've listened to the business wars stuff, but there is that kind of race that, that, that brings out the best in us, right? The competition that brings out the best in us. As things got closer, it got more interesting because then you start to realize that, oh, wait a minute. So we're going to be like selling digital assets. We're going to be holding crypto. Whoa, 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 whoa. Like, what does that mean? Right? Like there's a lot more things than just trying to come up with a cool concept and have the right product be made and, you know, take it to market. There are a lot more implications from a legal attacks and a compliance standpoint. And, you know, we were getting closer and closer to the thing. And so now we're in Q4, Q4 2021, which, you know, as you might remember, is not, wasn't the best year <laughs> for, um, for brands globally, economically. And so when you're trying to close out a tough year commercially, and then you're tugging on the shoulders of people to make sure that you're protecting your brand, then it starts to sort of, you know, attract a lot more attention. So I'm almost sure it could have got shut down two or three times before the drop. And it was all the hard work of getting that sponsorship earlier on. And to be honest, the willingness of a few people to take some reputational risk as well. It's always the case. Always. Every big brand I've yeah. spoken to, in anything innovative, there's always someone that takes a risk internally, whether it's monetary or reputational. And I commend those people, to be honest with you. Even when it doesn't work out, I commend those people for taking that risk. A hundred percent. Like if you are out there in a company trying to figure out how to do this, you got the belief, just back yourself, find your champions and have a good story and pick your timing. Like I think honestly, corporate innovation is a lot to do with how you till the soil and plant your seed and nurture it at the right time. 
And the larger the organization, sometimes the more conscious you need to be of that stuff. And I reckon if I didn't have a decade of experience at Adidas before that, we would have made some some much less wise decisions about that. And then just quickly as well, fast forwarding to drop happens, success, everyone's happy internally. How did the, the conversation switch from always, almost being shut down to there's something here? Yeah. So, I mean, the funny thing is, you know, I get asked a lot, how did you convince the board of Adidas to do this? Right. And um, the answer is we didn't. We didn't get permission up front from the entire board to sign that off. We explained it afterwards, which I think is a must, you know, like to, to, you know, the, you know, when do you ask for forgiveness and when do you ask for permission, right? So it was a little bit of a bet, not gonna, not gonna lie. Um, but things went well. So in, I don't know, January or February, we had a couple of different sessions with the board. And that's when we realized actually what happened with the Into the Metaverse thing was an amazing case study, an amazing case study of how do you enter a new space authentically? Number one. Number two, how do you merge audiences, new ones who are in this weird, wild NFT world and your existing members? How do you bring them with you and be one of the agents of onboarding, if you like, and exploration for your most engaged? You know, we used POAPs basically to give our members the same access as board ape holders, right? So that was, that was interesting. But like underneath it, what was the NFT in the first place? Is it a product, is it an asset? And now we have this whole community of people we're in direct contact with all the time. So you take it through step by step and you're like, well, firstly, the numbers made it, you know, that's how to get a board's attention. That made it look quite attractive. Um, We'd done something before Nike in the space as well, which is always a great source of pride. And I think honestly, just like many investors who, you know, you back a team, I think it just showed that there, there was the creativity and will to to innovate in the company and that that as i said is something that people want to culturally nourish that so yeah probably some of the a lot more attention from the board than i'd ever had prior to that but when you've got a good story it's it's all it's always it's always helpful and off the back of that there was a commitment to actually start the adidas web3 studio which is now actually more than a year down the line really thriving um and uh, i think the guys have they've been on an amazing tear recently um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm proud of that legacy. Yeah, no, you, you should be. I mean, they're, they're doing some really interesting things now with all by Adidas, which I'm sure we'll talk about down the line as, as some good examples. This is a question that I ask quite a few of my guests. Is there anything specific that you can think of in that? You mentioned some hiccups that you would do differently if you did it again. I would probably get my tax and compliance colleagues on board that little bit earlier. That's what everyone says. Yep. It's what we advise everybody we speak to as well, which seems a bit like counterintuitive. Just don't underestimate people, you know, especially now that there's a little more traction and there's more cases. Yes, there can be more skepticism, but with the right people, there can also be a lot more excitement. And that saves a lot of pain. I would say that the other part is be ready for what it means to have direct interaction with, with a community of people if you're not a brand which is used to doing that or you didn't build your brand that way, it's a different sport. So, you know, be ready for that. The story with the Adidas into the metaverse thing was, you know, great peak. And then we started to realize, okay, everybody now realizes that this is a lot more than just getting the clothes. This is like a brand entering the space and the promise of what can happen in the space. And they really want to be part of that. So we got to get the clothes thing done 
which by the way is quite hard. Like it sounds kind of, sounds kind of stupid, but we don't have a global logistics model to ship to anybody. It's all regional. So you kind of had to find like all these hacks just to get the product made to order and ship globally. And we were like, we need to get that because actually the promise here is far greater than that. And also creating a physical product that is as premium as the digital that you sold. Yeah, I mean, actually for Adidas, that's at least that's core competence. You know, that's core competence. But the, the logistics side of it, especially because normally when you make clothes, you make to a prediction of what they call a size curve, like how many do you need of each size? And I spent a lot of years basically combating the waste that comes from predicting things that are wrong. But you've already got people who bought an NFT. Why not just try and have them pick what it is that they actually want and just make that and nothing else, right? So a make-to-order system. But as some people, like if any, any of the audience was involved in that, they'll know it took quite a long time actually to get the stuff. So it was, it was uh, harder than we thought it was going to be. But I would never change that. I think the idea of connecting a physical product with this extension of the commerce experience and community experience is an awesome thing to do. But the community aspect and like how hungry the community is immediately afterwards was something we were not prepared for. And this is a question I've got for you. You mentioned not being fully prepared for that. And I, I don't think any brand would be. How difficult was some of the, the vitriol and, and criticism around what potentially you, got, you guys would have thought as smaller things internally from very ardent NFT community members? Yeah, very hard, I would say. Very hard. I mean, anybody who's working directly, you know, in discords, managing communities, or to be honest, even in real life, managing communities, understands that like it is a real skill, it's a real art, and it's a lot of emotional labor as well, right? You've got to have some pretty thick skin for that. And when you now put that in the context of a large brand environment where usually it's the brand's voice which is speaking, you know, it's not a human voice speaking as much as a brand voice. And now in your interactions, which are immediate and real time, you carry kind of the weight of the brand on your interaction, right? That is quite a change. The frequency of it, the always on nature of that. And the fact that there are expectations, which even if you didn't set them, they exist. So how do you go about managing those and responding to those? It took a few months, but I think now like the team now basically has like a pretty firmly established community team with, you know, quite a senior lead, Stacey King, awesome. And, you know, a bunch of really good mods who, who uh, some of whom were recruited from the community is in a completely different place. But that's something that you kind of need to prepare for. And actually, when we speak to brands now, like we actually help them to understand like, well, how deep do you want to go into that one? Right. Because there's a lot of potential, but it's also quite an investment. So let's figure out how that actually matters. Because you can see like, for example, on, with .swoosh, .swoosh exists, but it's not like, well, we're going to host the community in our own space put things out there and the conversation happens where it happens. And that is a different approach. But it was just at the time, it was just like the thing was to have a discord with everybody in it, wasn't it? So yeah, it's, it's an important choice. Yeah. And, and a lot of brands, as you said, you mentioned .swoosh have, have thought about this slightly differently or in another lens. There'll be more and more strategies to employ that are in discord, outside discord or a mix between. Can you remember a specific bit of criticism from a holder of one of your NFTs that made you think like, they're totally right. We should have done that. We should be doing this. Actually, there was a widespread, in fact, I just did an in-depth interview with, you know, my former colleague, 
lad who was here at the time. We went into this in some depth. So when that comes out in August, if you want the longer version of this, you'll find it there on, on Real Vision. But in a nutshell, we made a pretty important decision because of the community voice, not just one voice, but a lot of voices, which is the original plan was use the 1155 token, the NFT itself, and change its state three times. So you'd basically take that token, you'd forge the first item of clothing and it would change state, then the second item and that would change state and then the final item, right? And that was in part to sort of like spread the engagement, but also to manage the supply chain side of things and and what have you, and just demonstrate that this medium is something which can evolve, right? That was part of the fun of it. But the community voice really told us, you know, why do we have to wait so long to forge the NFT for the clothes? Like we kind of already know whether, or can we just do it all at once? And we were like, yeah, pro- yeah, we should probably do that. Um, it's harder, but it makes sense. And we were so excited to try and move the thing forward from the original thing into a new chapter. We just got the commitment from the organization that we're in. And so that was something which, you know, was a decision which actually we didn't trigger that decision. That was a decision which came from listening to the community. It came in the form of a ton of impatience, you know, like that's what really happened. And then, of course, the elapsed time to actually get the stuff didn't really change in the end. Um, So there was a lot of impatience which kind of drove that. But that kind of discomfort, if you're open to it, makes you better. Makes It makes you, well, arguably any product, any product creation process should have that, you know? It's just that things that are like focus groups and consumer research and UX testing, like they're all kind of quite industrialized things. This is like just a digital room where, you know, you're having a conversation and much more real time. Anybody who's involved in product now should really be thinking about Web3 or not, what that kind of live feedback can really do for your uh, creativity. So my last question in part one, you folks are in a position, you've sold the Into the Metaverse drop. It's done really well. Revenues have come in. The board are happy. Everyone's happy. But actually, you've dropped the product, right? This is like one proposition. And I think a lot of big brands were slightly guilty of this in the last cycle, right? It was like, we've got a brand logo. Let's stick it on a digital version of one of our physical products and sell it. That's not what Daddy Dust did exactly, but as an example. Some of them realize like, crap, we need like a whole thing to like aggregate everything we're doing in this specific world. And how do we do that? And so I can imagine internally there was a tendency to be like, oh, well, we can go and do that with Into the Metaverse and that and that. In the same way that like Nike have gone from crypto kicks and doing drops with Artifact to, well, hang on, actually, if we want this scalable to millions of customers, we need like a platform. We need a thing where everyone goes to interact with their dish to items and do stuff with them. And so who was the person in the room at Adidas who was like, hang on folks, this is one piece of the puzzle. I think that's quite difficult to put a finger on because that process was so dynamic. Like there's there's a few penny drop moments, right? One is we need to be in. The next thing is like, okay, we've got an idea, but we think this is going to have something to do with loyalty and membership in the future, but we're not quite sure what to okay, Dan, we're in and it seems to, to be working to, oh, community management, we need to figure that out. And it's a lot more than, the, like, we now need to move faster towards the redeemables thing. And then you start to realize that, well, actually, zoom out for a minute. The potential here is really about world building. That's what it means. And 
when you work inside a brand that's mainly focused on making apparel and shoes, and you know, you kind of know in your head that Gen Z is spending more time on social and in gaming environments, especially gaming environments that are kind of the new social networks, that it's just quite normal to sort of be immersed in a whole world. And how does a brand really mimic that? Actually, that's quite tricky. But start with things like identity. How do you express your identity in this world that like one of these worlds that we can help create for you? And so the idea, in fact, similar to the, the community voice point, people already wanted the whole program to move towards PFPs, right? We have this like, you know, these one of one kind of um, identity tokens that you can, with an avatar that you can use to express yourself in social, right? And eventually in gaming environments. So to go from a generic token to an identity token was something which even before I left back in, you know, early in 2022 was was a discussion point. But there were a couple of individuals like Vlad as one of them, the, the guy that I was working with on Confirmed and Web3, who I just interviewed, Erica herself, and several of the team could start to see where things were going. But then you start to realize we don't control all of those parameters now. There are other spaces, including Web2 gaming environments, incidentally, right? where we need to kind of start to pull these things together. There are more choices to give people around things like which traits matter and how to express identity. And so the idea of like going from a hype streetwear drop to world building, it's quite a long journey to go on. So picking the right moves along the way is is really important. But I think that's why you really need to make sure that you've got the right people on the team because you need that cross-functional creativity to unlock that. That's all we've got time for in part one. But before we do move into part two, I need to remind you that this podcast is supported by the HBAR Foundation, who are an ecosystem accelerator of Hedera, the most used sustainable enterprise-grade DLT for the decentralized economy. Together with industry-leading use cases and globally renowned partners, the foundation is actively scaling Web3 consumer engagement across the metaverse, gaming, DeFi, regenerative finance, and beyond. Welcome back to part two. Um, so fascinating to hear your journey at Adidas, but let's talk about life beyond it. I can presume that a man of your talents being at Adidas for 11 years could have probably left on several opportunities. Why was it Science Magic Studios that made you say, yeah, this is it. This is my time to do something else. Well, so I think I borrow this from from Simon Sinek, but there's an expression, you know, like if it's not a fuck yeah, it's a no, right? And when I moved to Adidas, it definitely felt like that. And I was, you know, I, I lived in Amsterdam to begin with, and then I moved to Oregon for a while, moved back to Amsterdam. We talked about that journey. It was like having three or four different jobs. So there was a ton of growth and I really loved it. And I had a deep connection with the brand. As you can tell, like my wardrobe is still catching up from the fact I don't I don't work there anymore. And I still can't stop looking at what people are wearing on their feet. You know, it's like a, it's like a disease that I can't get rid of. But I think it was basically it got to the point where there were, I think, two things. One of them was I realized that I think at any point in your career, you have to ask yourself, well, what are the superpowers that I really think that I'm on this earth to share? And how do I best put them to use? So I could easily have stayed at Adidas and probably worked on the Web3 thing and had a really, you know, central role in driving that whole strategy forward. But when Science Magic Studios came along, there was a couple of things I thought. The first was like, hey, you know, maybe this is a a good time for me to place a bit more of a bet on myself in something smaller. Because, you know, I've got ambitions in life, right? Like I 
I I don't want to sort of uh, get to the end of my career and wonder if I played it too safe, you know, right? What if, you know, that was the first thing. And, but it, it wasn't the first time that I'd been approached, of course, right? Um, so what was special about Science Magic Studios was the vision for it and its founders. So, you know, I'd been following Raoul Powell for about a year and a half at that point. He's one of the co-founders of Science Magic Studios. Um, Kevin Kelly um, of Delphi Digital. I'd been reading some of Delphi's uh, research and especially because, you know, as an engineer, things like tokenomic models and things like that were always fascinating to me. So I was aware of them. And then finally, David Pemsel, who, you know, he'd been CEO of The Guardian before that and had founded another strategic and creative company called Science Magic, which helps brands figure out how to connect with communities. I was thinking, okay, these three have got together a macro investor and thought leader, a blockchain research company, and a company that works doing strategy and creative with brands. That's the kind of unique combination that's needed to unlock a serious amount of value. Right. And I'd been looking out there and speaking to a lot of, you know, Web3 and crypto companies that I just did not think combined those things together. Right. Clue is kind of in the name, right? The science and the magic. And even for me personally, that really resonated, you know, like I'm also a musician by background. Like I've always had a very creative streak. The blend of art and science to me is kind of something I'd even been telling people as a USP of mine. And here you have a company who say, Hey, we're thinking about trying to help more brands and IP owners figure out how to unlock more value using this new medium. What do you think? And I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at the Adidas Web3 Studio, and I'm like, wow, the blueprint for this is quite similar to what I'm thinking here. This is the one that is worth making the jump for. And I made that decision back in April 2022. I only joined in August. And so Terra Luna happened, 3AC happened in between me signing the contract and starting, I could easily have decided, oh, maybe it's such a wise move, right? But I was just at that stage in life and career when I was just thinking, look, this is a long-term play. Like whatever happens in the next two years in the space, these are the people to go build with. And uh, I do not look back. Yeah, obviously Terra Luna and then you sign your contract three months later, FTX happens, right? Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm guessing that there's many people who watch your podcast as well who are either deep in it or, you know, on the periphery of it and thinking about it. And it definitely has been, you know, I mean, it's been, God, like, it's been a rough year for the whole space. But we've also noticed that, like, well, the ones that are still actually who have conviction and are still building in the space and working both on the service provider technology side and the brand side, the quality of conversations that's happening now is just exponentially higher than it was in the froth of the bull market, right? Arguably, the timing of like, you know, joining in the, in, in the, in the bear market, this is when the heroes are made and the most important and valuable long-term relationships are established. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's necessarily felt like a, uh, a cakewalk for sure, but, um, only the most important things that that uh, will get done in this period of time because they're the only things that make the cut. What would you say your unique value proposition is for SMS, considering there are loads of consultancies in the space at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So, so we're a studio, not just a consultancy, but a studio. So we actually use emerging tech to create deep and lasting relationships between brands and people, right? So you can tell that's our tagline, right? Kind of 
I've practiced that. You said part. that before. I've said that before. Yeah. I think the USP is kind of where I was going with the science and the magic thing, right? Like if you really want to create lasting impact, the first thing is one activation isn't going to be enough. You need to be able to think big. You need to think about the ecosystem that you're heading towards. And from a corporate innovation standpoint, figure out which bet you want to place, why that makes sense, much like the story I was telling you with the Into the Metaverse thing, and create a really firm step because you need to bring an organization with you and show, don't tell, right? Especially in an environment like now where people aren't chucking all their money into innovation, right? So I think that corporate innovation wisdom is definitely one of them. But you only get to tap into that if you can bring together three magical ingredients, you need the strategic science, right? So we've got a mix of people. I'm ex-BCG as well. Um, we have another ex-BCG on the, on the team. Uh, we have an ex-BAME person on the team. There's that kind of, you know, quite hardcore strategic consulting side of things. And then obviously on the technology side, you need to know what's up as well. But the other side of that coin is, how do we use this medium creatively, right? This isn't really an engineering challenge, right? This is really a case of, okay, this technology gives us a new type of paintbrush. What kind of pictures do we want to paint with that? And that's where our creative team really come into their own, right? So when we're talking like serious degens at the cold face of how artists are using the medium and trying to now abstract out how that can apply in use cases which really unlock the power of the cultural capital, IP, and uh, community that surrounds brands, right? So that's a much more experimental and creative endeavor. And the third part is experience. Like, how do you actually manifest that? Especially given that, you know, one of the big sort of PR problems that Web3 experiences have is just how, you know, user-friendly they are, right? Or, or not, as the, as the case might be. So being able to understand, well, you know, because we don't build everything in-house. There's been billions of money invested in crypto products and Web3 products. But which products are the ones that we should be using for this? Which are the partners actually that we think can deliver the best experience for that? So the strategy, creative and experience together, that's how you do something really, really special. And, um, you know, we like to work in really deep partnership with the people that we work with because only then can you actually do something which really elevates the brand into more of what it was already intended to be. Let's talk about that because it flows really nicely into the approaches you have when you're speaking to brands. The conversations with stakeholders there who are struggling to understand the value proposition. What do those conversations usually look like? Well, I'll start by saying, answering a different question, which is how initiated are people on the other side of the desk? And from a year ago to today, it's completely different. You know, now, I'll be really honest, we try not to spend as much time educating from scratch because we're a small company and, uh, you know, we don't really want to do just consulting. We want to launch game-changing experiences that really demonstrate, which means, you know, working with people who are quite ready. And what I've found in the last 12 to 18 months is that the sophistication of talent inside, you know, the sports teams or consumer brands or record labels has really increased. It's massively increased. So we don't actually end up spending too much of our time explaining like what NFTs are anymore. The questions are better. The questions are like, is this kind of the right time? What kind of size of bet should we really try and place on this? 
how quickly do we try to move to monetization versus do things for free? What's the right way to think about this in terms of our long-term loyalty strategy? What are the things that like, if we decide that we're in, should we just make sure that we don't not do, right? So to make sure that we know we do it, we do it the right way. So we actually end up spending more time talking to, to, to companies around the topics, which whether it is Web3 or whether it's AI or whether it's NFC or whether it's gaming or whether it's any emerging technology, there's always a corporate innovation conversation. How fertile is the ground? Who's all in? What size of better place? Those are the things that we actually end up spending more time talking about now. And we try to, to basically partner with the people who are already bold, because quite frankly, if you haven't got one foot in, nothing we say is going to, uh, is going to convince you right now. That's kind of the, the, the conditions of the market, I would say. And with sports brands specifically, do you, have you seen there's a difference in approach compared to, you know, you mentioned record labels and uh, fashion brands. What have some of those conversations looked like specifically? Yes, there's a difference. Absolutely a difference. What I've noticed, you know, I mean, I, I did work at Adidas for a long time, but always really on the lifestyle side of things. So um, I never worked, you know, directly with, you know, football teams or athletes and things like that or leagues. And what I immediately noticed is a, a much different focus on what a conventional com- commercial conversation sounds like. What would be very normal for a sports team or a league is to basically talk about licensing deals, right? So, hey, here's my intellectual property. How much money do you want to give me to go do something with it? What are you going to do? Okay, that sounds all right. Are the terms good? I'm very much simplifying it, of course. No, no, but it's, it basically is that. It definitely is that. And like for us, and maybe this is a little bit of bias perhaps, but in my view, if you really want to unlock the value which can exist between brand and community, like a licensee isn't the way to do that, right? Like there has to be something direct. There has to be something meaningful. And so it has been a little tricky to find those conversations. And, you know, a sports team as well, like there's always a bit of a debate about, you know, are sports teams really businesses in the field of sport or are they sports teams which happen to have to, you know, have a commercial model, right? What What is really coming first? So conversations around minimum revenue guarantees, like the Dapper model, which I know has been all over the kind of the Web3 and crypto press because it hasn't worked out that well with minimum revenue guarantees. That's the kind of stuff that we actually try and steer clear of. But the conversation which we're enjoying having in sport is starting to think about fan lifetime value, right? Which is a concept which, you know, I'd say consumer lifetime value um, or customer lifetime value has been language which has been around for a while. But even in quite sophisticated commerce brands, it's still something which is in its relative nascency because it's a predictive measure of what the value that a relationship will bring to you, right? And most companies, especially teams, are more about like jam today, right? As opposed to a prediction of future value. There are teams though who are ready to start thinking about some of those things. Like how do we start thinking about the fact that we are a global brand and currently we don't have direct connections with most of the people who recognize our brand. You know, I've got like a hundred million followers on social, but like I've only got like under a million account holders, that kind of conversation. There's 99 million somewhere that we're not communicating with, but like they see us through broadcast or they see us through social or some other platform. Wouldn't it be great to start thinking about having a direct connection with them and a conversation, and that of course leads to monetization opportunities too. And some even more forward-thinking teams have been thinking around how storytelling should happen regionally, right? Like your voice 
from wherever you are in the world. Like, how do you have your fans in Japan tell the story of your club and how do you empower them to do that? Not that many, but there are teams who are uh, are ready to do that. Leagues is another story as well. You know, the, the commercial model is obviously different with really the value exchange being around. And the IP is very specific. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, th- and that's where it's quite difficult to get past the, the licensing conversation. So we do have a couple of those conversations going, but it's really because of a few very forward-thinking individuals. I think the way you've described the kind of sports rev model and how it grates against like some of the things we're trying to do. And, and this is the type of thing I try and say all the time. I really think for some brands, you're not going to make direct revenue from this. Yeah. It's just the, the reality of it is, do you make direct revenue from social media? Like, no. But do you make a shit ton of revenue indirectly from social media? Yes. You can't quite ascertain how much, but you know it's good for your brand. I really do think those conversations will start flowing at a lot higher rate over the next few months because, you know, you mentioned the Dapper model. On the one hand, like Dapper are laying people off, like going back to the negotiating table from a licensee perspective, no one's going to give you a bigger check. So do you actually have a choice other than to just pre-negotiate? And so there needs maybe be some longer term thinking, you know, the, the kind of social media investment model that I mentioned, where there's more indirect revenue is one, you know, your direct consumer knowing, like having an on-chain CRM to some extent is another. These are the conversations that I think are going to start to flow more in the next three years. Yeah. And actually, I think you're, I would agree with your prediction on time frame. I would. There's definitely this swell of people understanding that, you know, sport IP basically are global brands. They're not just teams. They're global IPs that need to be thought of more, almost more like entertainment companies than sports teams. That's for sure there. And you can see what's happening with like, you know, uh, what Ryan Reynolds is doing with uh, with Wrexham and Alpine, the Formula One team now, and investing in that as well. I mean, there's even on the broadcast side, right? The NBA and like a lot of the college basketball team, they're going through this whole regional networking mm. thing where there's a lot of uh, consolidation, a lot of new verticals, a lot of people going direct to consumer as well on the streaming side. There's there's a lot of tailwinds that are quite interesting on the sports connection to fan side of things. It's actually something that I think the more mature IPs really need to be very thoughtful about because, you know, the way that sports and entertainment have been intertwined historically and the kind of broadcast model is just being chipped away at at every turn. Like the way that people consume sports media now is completely different for a start. Like sitting down, like I know Wimbledon is is kind of like one of those unique things, but tennis matches are pretty long, right? Just look at what's happened in cricket, how the franchise has evolved with, you know, 2020 and what's come since then. MLB have shortened their game. Was it last year or the year before where they've reduced the amount of average game time by like 20 minutes uh, and they've seen an increase in viewership? Oh, by 20 minutes? Yeah. (laughs) I have only ever made it to inning seven of a baseball game. That was as long as I could make it one time. But I, I, I think that's honestly right. And that's why you see disrupting franchises starting to, to pop up in golf, in tennis. I think it's a fascinating phenomenon which is happening now and any new franchise that you were going to design from the ground up you'd think of it first as an entertainment company and you'd think of the content as sport sport the the unscripted drama right like it's one of the very few things now that can create that unpredictability which is why everybody wants a piece of it but you wouldn't design it the same way it has been before right you'd design it as an entertainment franchise from from the ground up and so that's why I think it's really important for those mature IPs to really think about how to how to do that because they're not necessarily safe, 
right, from uh, from competition as, as they might have been in the past. I mean, to some extent, yeah, because if you think about like Pickleball came out of nowhere and whilst it's not a competitor to table tennis or tennis or whatever else, we're all competing for attention. We're all competing for users or players, whatever it may be. I think that a great example is the Kings League uh, yeah. football, right? Gerard Piquet started that. The following they've gained is is crazy. Conversely, you've got th- stuff like fan-controlled football, which is not coming back for their third season. And they were their model needs tweaking if they're ever going to do anything in the future, even though some of the baseline stats there are really, really great. I wanted to not pivot this, but, but ask you a question. I've got this idea that the convergence of tech with like everything in culture is the most important trend we're seeing over the next 10 years. So. And I think crypto made that leap from this financial thing. It crossed the cultural chasm when NFTs became mainstream. And now more broadly speaking, Travis Scott, Fortnite concert, EA Games partnering with Dot Swoosh for NFT apparel to be usable in games. Dot Swoosh partnering with Fortnite and your Epic Games account is suddenly connected to Dot Swoosh. This kind of convergence on the everything culture, including sport and tech, is really scary, but also a massive opportunity, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, absolutely. It's, I mean, I just staked my career on that. So, <laughs> you know, it's, I, I, I obviously agree. And I think one of the interesting things that comes out of that, I think that, so there's a, there's a few things. First is when I really kind of was leaving Adidas and joining Science Magic Studios, I was really thinking about Web3, NFTs, cryptocurrencies and everything. In, in reality, there's not a single use case that we've been exploring with a brand that doesn't connect with another one of these emerging techs, whether it's generative AI, whether it's NFC tagging in physical items or Web2 gaming environments. There needs to be some kind of connectivity for your brand or IP to tell a story across these medium. The digital assets and blockchain side of it is so fundamental though, because at the end of the day, there needs to be the idea that there is digital matter. In a digital world, like we can see and touch things in the physical world, there needs to be a unique way to identify, own, and and transfer those things. But it really just needs to be the backbone of the thing. It's not the story of the thing. I always say people that think NFTs are weird now, in a hundred years, it's going to be so alien to people that we couldn't own things online in a place that we spend half our time in. That's right. I mean, actually, there's there's a couple of ways of looking at this. Like, I really like what Kathy Hackle does, you know, when she sort of opens up and she's an advisor to SMS. And when I've been on panels with her before, she said, you know, hands up if you think that you'll be leaving digital assets to your kids in your lifetime, you know, and everybody's like, oh, wow. Like, you know, I didn't really think about that. Like the things I leave are basically like money and stuff, but actually digital assets, that is what they are. They're money and stuff, right? Just not in the realm that we have been used to. I like to use the analogy of digital matter, you know, and it was, it was something that was really bugging me about six months ago when everybody was like, oh, look what Reddit did. They didn't say NFTs, they said digital collectibles, right? And that's how, that was like a major thing to sort of let go of that. And I'm like, that, I think that's true, but there's, because you've got to sort of speak language that people just kind of are ready to hear. And there's no doubt about that. But it does kind of also constrain a little bit what we're thinking about here. Like an NFT is a lot more than a digital collectible, right? It's a little bit like saying carbon is the same thing as lumps of coal, right? 
like, yeah, I mean, yes, carbon and lumps of coal. I can hold a lump of coal. I can see it. I can touch it. I can burn it. So you can also do that with, with NFTs. But carbon is also the actual, one of the principal building blocks of matter in the physical world, right? So thinking about something as like this simplistic view of a collectible, uh, it kind of also masks the fact that actually that, you know, in 10 years time when nobody's even thinking about what an NFT looks like, it'll be more akin to what is the atom in the digital realm. And we won't be talking about the atom that it's constructed from. We'll be talking about the things that are comprised of that and, and that will be normal. And I think that's the way now that we talk about this stuff. We don't really talk about NFTs and, 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 uh, and crypto when we're talking with brands. We talk about uh, the intersection of you know, a high context community with ownable assets, with the connection between digital and physical things, with new ways to create imagery and video that can be held on these things. And it's the convergence of those technologies, which is the new connective tissue between people and between brands and people. That's why we're so bullish on it. But it's, it's not really Web3 alone in our view that does that. It's just that you need that digital asset backbone. You need the building blocks. Yeah. You need the, the foundation, Absolutely um, right. which a lot of people think this is. Uh, as you said, you staked your career on it. So let's hope you're right. Yes, I do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you're early, you're wrong, right? <laughs> that's, the, that's the saying. I do ask myself that a lot, a lot of the time. But um, there is that idea, though, of sometimes for a big brand, there can be first mover disadvantage, right? And I think that's true for NFTs or Web3, whatever, whatever buzzword we want to use, more than like almost anything. Because when you launched into the metaverse with Adidas, the regulatory landscape then compared to now is already so different, right? And a lot of things have happened for that to become true, but we've had regulation in Europe. We've got pending regulation in the UK. We've got the US just going on a tear in a few different ways, but it looks like there might be some clarity there soon as well. And you've got progressive countries like Portugal with Lisbon and Paris becoming crypto hubs in, in Europe and then also you know Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan who have already got pretty mature regulations that are attracting a lot of talent, capital and businesses out there. Is there a temptation sometimes from brands where they're like, well actually this is a really weird thing to account for for our tax people or like our compliance team until this specific regulation comes in just think it's not a good idea for us. Sometimes is your advice when you're speaking to brands, look, you should still be thinking about this, but you're right. Until that thing tweaks, you shouldn't probably pull the trigger. I think if anybody's saying our tax team is looking at the regulation and thinking, then, then like, that's one we want to talk to because, that, <laughs> because that's, that's, that's a mature question, I think, yeah. actually. Yeah. I mean, look, as I keep coming back to these emerging technologies and blockchain and Web3 is the current wave of, of technology innovation, which means that corporates need to innovate. And um, I go back to the fertile ground thing. If we don't think the ground is fertile, we don't try and convince the brand that we're talking to that it's more fertile than it is. In fact, we also can't afford to spend our time unless we think that those conditions are right as well. We have a good idea about where we think the soft underbelly is right now to actually, you know, the closest thing to market fit. For example, you know, you raised something I think very important earlier, which is if you have a mature approach and a long-term approach to driving, you know, lifetime value, you don't rush to monetize, right? On the other hand, for innovation initiatives, often, just because of the way budgets work and the climate works, if it can wash its face and sell funds, sure, let's give it a go. 
but now you're moving towards monetization, right? So you get this kind of rock and hard place thing. Like ultimately, and I don't know who said this, I think it might have been Brian Tronzo from from Polygon. I'm, I'm not sure. So if I'm misquoting, I'm sorry, sorry, whoever should really have credit for this. But something along the lines of, you know, most NFTs will trend to zero in value because they're really just going to be connective tissue, which is transferred really at not really any kind of cost and not really any value. We don't really think about these things as like collectible art all the time. The issue with that is unless you can start to see what that ROI is, it's difficult to invest, right? So how do you sidestep that? Well, where is there actual utility from a thing that you can buy? Like if you want to sell something on a digital asset, it shouldn't be the promise of future utility utility when roadmap conversation where you're, you know, consistently enslaved to this community you've made some kind of vague promises to, and also it kind of looks like a security, right? Instead, what are people willing to actually spend the money for? Where are they literally like super fans of something? Where is there a luxury or a premium component to that, which in and of itself is the utility and the extra functionality that a digital asset like an NFT offers is a kicker as opposed to the main event. And it's choices like those which I think help sidestep some of the complexity and focus where there's much more immediate value and utility for brands and teams. And the great thing is, honestly, there's still a ton of opportunity in that space. Just think about where all of the like love from humans towards ideas and IP or teams exists. It's everywhere. And there is a ton of untapped value of using this medium to capture that and to orchestrate these communities of people who a lot of the time remain unknown without these direct connections. And now you can bring them together. That alone is very, very ripe territory. So we don't try and convince somebody about the big picture. We sort of make sure that the next bet that we place is worth placing. Let's switch gears a little bit to wrap up. What are you excited about more broadly in this space? Well, I think, so there's two things I think I'm excited about. One is pretty much what we've been talking about, which is that convergence point. Because I think now we start to see that the synapses are connecting between different technology disciplines, which leads to exponential creativity and opportunity. So to me, as somebody, you know, who's always been thinking about how do you create more value with less waste? Um, and how do you sort of like tap this value in all these institutions and companies which have been built up over decades and decades? To me, that's like a playground. Like I absolutely love that challenge. And like we were talking about those people who are in corporate innovation, making it happen. Those are the people that I want to really sort of celebrate and salute and work with because we've got fun careers ahead of us. But the second thing is that, I don't know, I start to see like signs that we're also at that stage in the life cycle right now where you know, we're not just getting punched in the face all the time, quite frankly. To see these events where regulatory clarity starts to emerge, where there are, I think, some more interesting consumer use cases coming to the foreground, and where, you know, the companies that are also going to make it, the ones that are going to survive, are, are going to emerge as well. So I kind of do feel a lot of optimism for, I think, you know, between 12 and 36 months from now, I would say. Um, so this is a great time to be plugging away. Because that will come really quickly. Yeah. Well, I mean, it will, but like, you know, the, the sort of like, you know, one, one year in this space is like 10 years. Is, yeah. You know, I didn't really have any sort of gray hair in my, <laughs> my beard when I kind of started this, I guess. But um, I'm feeling that sense of um, not hopium, 
but real optimism. And if you can afford to be patient right now, you know, don't quit. There's going to be a lot of very interesting innovation that happens. And um, that's going to create value, not just for companies, but also for people. And um, that's what I'm most looking forward to. Conversely, what do you think is being overhyped at the moment? Something that people are getting super excited about where you're like, I don't know, actually. I don't know. I think I think the tempta- the tempting thing was to say that to say AI, right? But like I actually don't really know if AI is being overhyped, to be honest at all. We use it daily right now. So like that's a real thing, you know, like the gap between hype and reality on AI is much narrower than it has been for Web3, I would say, mm-hmm. right? Like I think that's that's for sure true. So I try and maybe not to judge too quickly because there's basically a whole bunch of hype curves going on in kind of parallel right now. Probably more than ever before, right? Yeah. Definitely. And it definitely is harder to separate the kind of signal from the noise and and, and narratives are very simplistic, you know? Like the number of places I go where it's like, you know, is Web3 still a thing? I thought it was all AI now, right? I'm like, well, never has there been greater demand for anything on a blockchain than when you can create exponentially quickly, right? So there's a bit more nuance to it. And the reason I enjoy that is because there's a lot of sense making to do. But you know what the art of this is? Just cherry pick and show, don't tell. Narratives, panels, the things that you see in the press, I don't know. Like it's all about seeing like what creative strategy and technology can do together in real use cases. That's the mission. And then I'll I'll give you a final question to wrap up on. What does the future of this space look like? And potentially, if you can, specific to sport. Wow. I think the fact that I'm not quite sure is what excites me the most. I definitely think sort of in 24, 36 months time, like this conversation that we're having around NFTs and fandom and direct to fan connections is going to be normal, right? That's what I think. I think the connectivity between digital assets and games is, is going to increase. I think we've seen a couple of moves now which at least point the compass in the right direction, but it's still techno- technologically hard to do. I think that if I fast forward maybe 10 or 20 years, I wonder in sport and actually also in fashion and uh, consumer brands as well, if some of the biggest brands that exist with the largest communities, even some of the biggest ones are ones that I don't think even exist today. Mm, okay. Right. Like that's what I think. I think that the threat to incumbents of disruption right now feels really big. I don't think like, for example, like a, like a Nike is necessarily going to be like totally unseated or destroyed or something like that. But I do think that the rate at which smaller brands or new leagues and IPs can emerge is, is just going to accelerate. I think a great example is we've seen this before in gaming, right? FIFA with their game or now EA ultimate team where you buy packs of cards, that only became a thing in 2008. Now it's their biggest revenue driver. Oh, I didn't know that. I think it is, yeah. Don't quote me on that. I think it is. Uh, but it's in the it's like... your podcast, mate. <laughs> <laughs> the internal disruption as well, alts by Adidas, which we didn't get a chance to get into too deep because I think it is still quite primitive in its journey. That could be the biggest thing. Or Dot Swoosh could be Nike's biggest platform. And again the odds of that happening are fairly high, but it's not like a, that's never going to be a thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you've got your pole in the water right now, that's the main thing, I think. 
Because if those things do evolve that way, whether it's dot swoosh or alts by Adidas or whatever it ends up being is not going to be exactly what we think it is today. That's for sure. Like the road to the future is nonlinear. So whatever we think it's going to look like, just don't hold on to that vision too tight. That's why I'm sort of a little reluctant to sort of paint, paint a picture perhaps. Because it's the art of navigating the path that's the real skill. And it also just keeps you in the present moment and enjoying what you're doing as opposed to trying to like boil the ocean of all these exponential technologies and how it's all going to fit together. Innovation, I think, is one of those things where you just got to find your way, have a good compass and have really good people around you. It's like kind of picking a team of people that you'd want to go climb a mountain with. You know, you're not quite sure exactly how it's going to go, but you know that if you're going to make it, you're going to do it with these people. That's the way I think about the journey. I think that was a great note to end up on. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching, whichever way you've consumed this. Tarek, where can people find out more about you and SMS? Uh, Twitter. So you can find me at Tarek Naslawi on Twitter and um, at ScienceMagicXYZ. Awesome. You can find me at Pet Berisha, P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A on Twitter or on LinkedIn with the same name. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast, but also subscribe to our newsletter that goes out every Monday, keeping you up to date on all things sports and Web3. And just remember that none of what we have said during this show is financial or business advice, and this content is for informational purposes only. Web3 is underpinned by crypto, and crypto is volatile, meaning you can lose money if you are buying these assets personally or as a business. Where we're recording right now in the UK, the majority of crypto asset companies are unregulated. Thanks very much once more for watching, and have a great day.